איש אשר עמו יתנחמני, קין ונו Good evening and welcome and welcome and welcome. So, uh, tonight's class is dedicated, Baruch Hashem, by Ari and Tova Roth. And this is in honor of their new baby boy that was born today in the morning. Mazel Tov and Mazel Tov and Mazel Tov, baby Roth so far. And Ezra uh, Hashem, he's going to have his bris next week and we're going to find out what his name is. We want to wish both Ari and Tova they should raise their new beautiful young baby boy in good health and have a lot of wonderful from him and all their other future children this is their first child big big mazel tov I have a little little part in this being that I and my wife my wife and I were the shatchan so we have a little bit of a part in this and I'm very proud because it's my only shedach so now fruits Listen here, at least I have one under my belt. Not a lot, but one. That's really, really special. So I want to wish also the grandparents, the Roths and the Bistamskis, Ushi and Sharon Bistamski and Zalman and Esther Roth, and the, the Elta Bobby, Mrs. Ellie Rubin, and uh, all the other family, big, big bracha, mazel, and a lot, a lot of nachas from all the children and grandchildren, and Bezos Hashem, future grandchildren, and there should only be Simcha and Mazel, what a good, beautiful blessing, right after Tisha B'Av, as the new light comes pouring in. This is really, really exciting. Okay, so that's great. Now, we're ready for, for such a great Simcha, we need to have a really good cheer. So what got me excited, and I think everybody should excited, be excited. I didn't talk about it much yet on Shabbos. Some people were wondering in Shul why I didn't really talk about it. Um, but I'm going to talk about it today. So what got me excited is that we are seeing a lot of biblical signs. Um, with the Eibishter, where Hashem from heaven, they are not just whispering, I think they're shouting <laughs> and trying to give us all signs possible that we should wake up and realize that the time is here. The time is here. And um, for all those that are skeptics and think I'm crazy, I willfully accept the title crazy. The Lubavitcher Rebbe said about himself, I'm crazy about Mashiach. 
imagine that the Rebbe doesn't say words that are, I'm crazy about Mashiach. So I'm in good company if I'm crazy about Mashiach. Um, I'm trying to be crazy about Mashiach, but it does get me crazy. But I don't think it's crazy anymore. I think things are becoming so clear. We've seen, just in the past year, I'm just going to point to three things that are extraordinary. I'm talking about in terms of signs. There were many things I was talking about during the year, which are, as I see, part of the actual process of the redemption. I would recommend um, anybody that listens to this year to look it up on YouTube. In general, I would suggest, those who like these classes, subscribe to our channel, our YouTube channel. In addition to the website, in addition to the CDs, in addition to the podcasts, um, the first place you can always receive the class, first, it's always on live, is on YouTube. Actually, right now, it's streaming on YouTube. Facebook, Facebook doesn't get all the classes. YouTube gets all. So subscribe to our YouTube channel. And... um, that's good, and but you realize that by you subscribing to YouTube, actually more people get to see it because the more people subscribe to it, the more it shows up on people's feeds. So um, it would be helpful for us, but also for you, a good thing for yourself. So there is two classes that are there, which I gave last week, one on last week Sunday, and the other one I gave on on Wednesday. It was a class, there was no audience here, it was just for the online community. It's called Opening Our Eyes. And I gave a part one, and I gave a part two. And in those classes, I basically did a full synopsis of everything we've spoken about in the last couple of years, of biblical prophecies being fulfilled as signs and as part of, not just signs, but as part of the process of the redemption. Hold on one second. Um, so that is that is um, so that so over there we discussed everything. But I just want to point out three things that I think is just a flash from above to tell us. Hashem is telling us, "Get ready, my dear children. The geula is, is upon us. The geula is about to come. We're about to experience the greatest, the greatest, the greatest." And it's after Tisha B'av already, so we've we've done the sadness. We've done, we've done the darkness. We're ready for the joy. And boy, oh boy, are we ready for the joy. So what are the signs that I'm talking about? If you remember earlier this year, around uh, Kislev time, I think Kislev or Tavis, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, this is talking about November, December. There was a snake on the wall of the Kotel. And uh, it was a shocking thing to see a snake go on the Kotel. And, uh, but but to, to me, the Chiddush, as I spoke then, was not that the snake is on the wall, was that the snake was ripped off the wall. And if you remember the, the scene, if you watch that video, we're so used to new news that we forget old news. So like, <laughs> these things, had they happened like uh, uh, 200 years ago, they would be talking about it for six months. First of all, it would take six months for news to spread, and people would be talking about it, not six months, they would be talking about it for three years, about an event that happened. But now we're so used to such quick, constant updates of information that old information becomes old news so quickly, literally, becomes like if you're not, you know. So, but this was interesting. If you remember that video, or that, that scene, if you can see, you can still look it up, snake on the wall, look it up. You see that the snake is, it seems to be going next, next to the birds, 
and the birds suddenly like fly away, like at the last second, they 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 they, they like they look. The birds are in the wall, and they like. And we know that the Jewish people are compared to the birds. The snake is coming, and the birds make their getaway. It's really interesting. But then I spoke, if you remember, that the we brought a pasuk in Mishlei where it speaks derech nachash selah, the way of a snake going on a stone. And we discussed the spiritual meaning of the stone being, I think, if you remember, then we discussed the stone being the the shechina, uh, the kotel hamaravi, the kotel is the shechina, and so on and so forth. The snake is deriving its energy. It's 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 the klipa, the unholy, being latched in the wall for the last 2,000 years. And the great thing is not that the snake was on the wall, but that we saw the snake being taken off the wall. They come, the people come, and they pull the snake off, which is a sign to me, again, maybe you might say I'm crazy that I read into these things too much. I think when Hashem shows us things, we have to pay attention. The snake coming off the wall is a sign that the forces of unholiness that have been sucking and deriving and usurping spiritual energy, and we know that whoever learns a little Kabbalah and Hasidus knows that the entire power of the unholy is only called Yenikas Hachitzonim, the forces of unholiness rooted in the snake. It's like the snake going to Chava, trying to, 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 to steal energy from her. That was rectified. So we're done with that. That's awesome. Second sign this year, which was unbelievable, was that the Notre Dame, the big, big church in Paris, burnt down. And the fact that it caught fire right before Pesach. Over here it was Yud Nisan, the day that Hashem burns down, that Hashem destroyed the gods of Egypt. It, it, it was Shabbos Agadol. It was Shabbos Agadol. No, the gods of Egypt actually were destroyed um, on Pesach by night. But it was Shabbos HaGadol, Amaka Mitzrayim, Bifchareim. Here it didn't happen on Shabbos, it happened but on Yud Nisan. But in France, it was actually Yud Aleph Nisan. And we've dis- I discussed it in my other class, what's the significance of the 11th day of Nisan. You can listen to that class, opening your eyes, and see why that is so significant, in addition to the fact that it's Pesach. That it's right before Pesach. And that church was... We just read yes two days ago. Oh, yesterday. What am I saying? Two days ago. Yesterday in Eicha, we just read the lamentation from uh, Rabbi the Maram of Rottenberg, who wrote a kina. He wrote a a a, a piece of poetry lamenting the, the what the the horrible atrocities that were perpetrated by Notre Dame. It was over there where they burnt the Talmud right in front of that church, in the square over there, is where they had the public burning of wagon loads, 70 I think, 70 wagon loads of, of, of holy manuscripts and Talmuds that were being born, burnt. And he writes, and we said it yesterday, for this that you have done, um, I don't have the exact words with me right now, but something to the effect, how fortunate will it be when you will experience the fires that you have done to us? And that just experienced this year. But in addition to that, there is two statues. In Notre Dame, there is two women statues. One of them is a woman looking up high 
with her head raised up, wearing a crown, and she's holding a scepter. She's obviously the triumphant woman. The other woman is a woman looking down. She has a snake wrapped around her eyes. She's holding the tablets of Moses, and they're half falling down. Her crown is cast to the ground in the dust. And what these two statues meant to symbolize was the triumph of Christianity over Judaism and how Judaism has fallen and it's no more God rejected the Jews. And there is the new religion, which is Christianity, which is really at the root of our exile. That fire that broke out this year burnt massive destruction in the church. It didn't burn the statues, but it burnt massive destruction in that church. Why? Because things are turning around. The, the exile is ending. Again, it's clearly a sign from heaven. And what is exciting right now, the week of Tisha B'Av, we got to see foxes. We got to see a whole bunch of foxes right next to the western wall and next to the Harabayas. Now we're talking about the middle of a city. Now I know once, I remember a few years ago, there were coyotes over here on my block on Detroit Street, I think on Formosa, I was driving by early one morning, there were coyotes coming down from the mountain. But really these wild animals, these, they, they don't hang out in the middle of the streets. You know, Yerushalayim is all built up that area. It, it, there, there, there is no foxes there. And now we saw, and, 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 and we saw the foxes. And what is the significance of the foxes? Well, we read it in Echa. We say, we, in Eichon, which we said the other night, we said how, 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 how did it happen? Foxes are walking on the Temple Mount. Which brings to mind an incredible passage in the Talmud Mesechtis Makos. Makos, which is one of the tractates of Talmud, a story that is told about Rabbi Akiva and his friends. And how Rabbi Akiva saw in the fox walking in the place of the Holy of Holies, that that's a sign of the promise of rebuilding, the promise of the third temple. I don't know if we've seen foxes there for the last 2,000 years. I can tell you that we have cameras that watched for 2,000 years and said they didn't see foxes. But I do know that this week we saw foxes. And what is the significance? We say, well, that, that, that's the opposite. Foxes walking over there shows on how desolate the place is. This is, this is, this is my theory. And again, this is the first thing I saw. Everybody, everybody saw this, but this is the first thing that came to my mind when I heard the story. I think it was like 10, 15, 10 or 12 foxes. It wasn't just one. It was like a bunch of them. Nice looking foxes. And they're all, they're all like jumping up and down and running around. I think the family of foxes are being evicted. The foxes are there for 2,000 years. They're occupying the place. Because then that's the sign of the ultimate desolation. I just looked it up in Kabbalah in the writings of Ramosha Kardavu, the Ramak, in Sefer Pardes Rimonim. I didn't get a chance to do more Kabbalistic research. But I just looked it up 
about 20 minutes ago. Over there he has a index um, of Kabbalistic meaning to different, different animals, creatures, people, phenomenon, objects. What is the spiritual meaning? So he talks about foxes. He describes how the foxes represent the same idea of the snake. They represent the klipa, the chitzonim, deriving energy from Kedusha. He brings a pasuk in Shir Hashirim, Achsulanu Sha'olim, that next to the Mishkan, the foxes would go, which means they're trying to penetrate, they're trying to derive, siphon up some energy. These are the chitzonim, the forces of unholiness. The eviction of the foxes that we've seen this week is basically telling us the foxes are leaving. The Palestinians are leaving. The Jordanians are leaving. Al-Aqsa, whatever, is being evacuated. That's why you can hear it that there was, they, they were rioting over Tisha B'Av. They They know it. They know it so well that they're packing their bags. They can feel it. They can sense it in their bones. The Palestinians are saying now over and over again, the Jews are planning to build a temple. They know it. How do they know it? They know it in their bones. They know it through their mazel. So this is just one of the signs that is happening. So because of that, I'd like to dedicate this class to the story of the foxes, to the original story of what Rabbi Akiva said. And what we're going to see is that even though the foxes on that in that place initially meant the ultimate destruction and darkness, the holy eyes of our great sage and martyr, martyr Rabbi Akiva, was able to penetrate, penetrate the thickness of that darkness and see the positivity, and see the good, and see already the redemption. How much more are we supposed to see? We're standing already 1900 years after Rabbi Akiva. The Golos is past us. When we see the foxes, what is supposed to be our rejection, or our reaction? We should be literally dancing on the streets. That's the truth. That is the truth. So we should get ready for the greatest Yom Tiv of Tuba Av, the 15th of Av, and reunification of the Jewish people and God. We are moving, and we're moving really fast. Okay, so let's see what the Talmud says over here. And it's really connected to this Shabbos. This Shabbos we know is called Shabbos Nachamu. And the way the Shabbos Nachamu is called Nachamu is because in the Haftorah that we read, we read how God comforts the Jewish people. And he says, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami. It's a Pasuk in Isaiah in Yeshaya. It says, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami. Be comforted, be comforted, my people. The Midrash tells us, why does it say a double language? Be comforted, be comforted. What is the re- repetition? So the Midrash says that the repetition is because, Laku because we were beaten twice, Simply, we lost our first temple and we lost our second temple. And that's why when we cry, we cry and we cry, a repeated weeping and repeated crying. So we got beaten twice. And therefore, our comfort is also a double comfort. But we need to understand, then that's understood. Then that's obvious. What's the Chiddush? What is the deeper meaning of this 
of this double comforting. Yeah, if we were beaten twice, we need to, we need to be soothed two times. The, the Medrash is, however, saying there is a, there is a chitish over there, there's a novelty, that we got a double comfort. What is the deeper meaning of the double comfort? So we find in the Gemara also, in the story of the foxes, we find, or the fox, we find a, also the sages use the double term of comfort. And by looking and reading that story carefully, we will glean insight into the deeper meaning of being comforted twice. What is the significance of the double comfort? So let me read to you the story. Okay, so this is the Talmud in the end of Tractate Makis. Davchov Dalid, page 24 on the bottom of the page. Those who know this passage of the Gemara and think you know the meaning of the story, um, I'm sure you learned it. And I also learned it. But stay tuned because there's definitely chiddush. There is, there is novelty. You know, there'll be something new. Something very enlightening, enriching, empowering by the time we're done with this. Okay? Something very special. So it says as follows. The Gemara says that Ukvar who had this beautiful, beautiful group of people. Right? We would wish to, to just to be a fly on the wall next to these people. But we would be wish that we can stand by our window and look outside between the blinds and watch them walking down the road. Who is this? This is Rabbi Gamliel. He's the Nasi. He's the leader of the Jewish people. Rabbi Laza ben Azariah. And um, Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Akiva. Mahalchem Bederech, they were going on the way. Actually, they were going towards Rome. We'll soon see the reason they were going was in order to annul decrees. They, they, they had problems. The Romans then, this is about, you know, this after destruction of the temple. Uh, this could have been before the revolt, before the Bar Kokhva revolt, because after the Bar Kokhva revolt, Rabbi Akiva then later was killed. Right? The famous story of Rabbi Akiva being tortured to death by the Romans happened later. But this was probably during those 50 years the Romans had kept on decreeing vicious decrees on the remaining Jews living in the land of Israel. And the rabbis had to travel to Rome to try to um, work, you know, to try to soften the, 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 the heartless hearts of the, of the, Roman, of the, Roman, uh, of the Roman government. Anyway, so as they're going, So they heard the noises coming from Rome. They heard the tumult. They heard a, 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 a lot of commotion coming from Rome. Meplatia, from the great plazas. Okay, so they heard festivities. Shouting, singing, concerts, fears, music, fireworks, festivities. How far were they? They were May of Esri Mill. They were 120 mil. A mil is a, is a Trum Shabbos, 2,000 cubits. So uh, I'm talking about probably about 3,000 feet. So 3,000 times 120. So you're talking about, about close to 400,000 feet away. So we're talking about a, a quite a far distance. 
miles and miles, how much miles if this is about, if this is about 50 miles away or 100 miles away, I'm not exactly sure how far exactly comes out in mileage or in kilometers, the distance that they were, but yet the, the noise coming from the city, Rome was so powerful and Rome was so strong that they can hear the sounds of their partying at such a great distance. His chilu boichen, so Rabbi Akiv, Rabbi, Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi, Rabbi, who is he? Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, Rabbi Yeshua started crying. Rabbi Kiva mesachek, and Rabbi Kiva is laughing. As they start weeping, he starts, he starts laughing. Amru Lai, they looked at him like he's crazy, but they knew he's a tzad, you know, he's Rabbi Akiva. They said to him, Emata mesachek, what's so funny? What in the world are you crying? Why are you laughing? So he says to them, And why are you crying? You tell me why you're crying, then I'll tell you why I'm laughing. So they said to him, What do you mean, why we're crying? It's obviously quite obvious. These idolaters who bow down to idols and they offer incense. To the gods, to their to their to their idols, Yoishvin betach vahashkeit. They're sitting securely and in tranquility. They have no threats. They're not worried. They can party like this because they're not afraid of anybody. They're sitting in such comfort and in such security. Va'anu and we've that's the Romans. We the Jewish people are so downtrodden. And base hadoim saruf, the house of the footstool of God, of our God, lay burnt, lie burnt down. Beish in fire, nifka, and we shouldn't cry. This what we're seeing now is horrible. Take a look at what a crazy world this is. These murderers, these, these, these idolaters, these worst of the worst, and they're living in such peace and such tranquility and such power and such strength. And the Jewish people and the temple is destroyed, is burnt. And, I, and we shouldn't cry? Amalahem, so Rabbi Kiva says, That's why I'm laughing. Because they thought maybe he wasn't paying attention, maybe he was looking at something else. Maybe he was remembering something he studied. He said, no, 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 no. Actually, I hear the same noise that you're hearing, and I'm thinking about the same thing that you are thinking about, but that makes me laugh. Why? Because he he says, If to those who transgress his will, it is so. To those who transgress God's will, they yet... They have such peace, tranquility, and goodness in their life. Life is good for these transgressors. If you think about transgressors, these are the worst transgressors possible. And yet life is so good for them. To those who do His will, which are the righteous, the Jewish people that are doing God's will. How much more so the day will come when we will party. In other words, by looking at their party, and I see how unbelievable, big, and strong, and joyous, and festive is their party, I can only imagine 
and they're sinners. They don't have God's grace, yet they're, be, they're receiving God's blessings. And God's blessings to them in their heyday is so enormously great. Can you imagine how ginormous it will be to those who, are, who Hashem has an interest in, 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 in supporting, in blessing, and in and, 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 and His benevolence and in His kindness. Can you imagine what kind of joy and jubilation it will be on the days when it will finally come? So that makes me laugh. It makes me happy. That's the story. They don't answer Him. Seems like they had their opinion. They're weeping. He's laughing. Okay. Then the Gemara continues and relates a second story. It's another time. Now they're going in the opposite direction. This time they're going towards Rome. Now they're traveling towards Jerusalem. Same group of sages. When they came to the Mount Scopus, which is, Sophim comes from the word vision, where you can look at a distance. That is the farthest place where you can still see the Temple Mount. If you go farther away, you can't see it anymore. That's a place where you stand up there, you can see the Beis Amigdash, or what was once the temple. The halacha is when you come to, when you come to a place where you see the, the destruction, even today that's a halacha, when you see the destruction, you have to rent your garments. You have to do kriya. When you go to the Kotel, when you go to Jerusalem, and people, some people don't know this, but you're supposed to fulfill the mitzvah of kriya. If you haven't seen it for 30 days, people don't realize. That's why it's good to always carry, when you go to Israel, I hope we should, Mashiach should be, or we should never see it again in its ruins. But you have to do that. There's only, when you go to Rosh Chodesh, or you go at a time when, you, when you're exempt from doing that, but otherwise. As soon as they came to the Temple Mount, so first they, they, they rent their clothing, Seems like everybody rent their clothes. Even Rabbi Akiva, okay? They all rent their clothes. Because that's, Rabbi Gershon says, because that's the halacha. That's what you're supposed to do. But when they came further, they came closer. They came to the Harabais, to the Temple Mount. Again, this might be 20 years after the Temple was destroyed. I'm not exactly sure. 10 years, 5 years, 10 years, 15 years. They saw a fox coming out from the Holy of Holies. So they started weeping. And Rabbi Akiva is again laughing. Same story. They're weeping and he's laughing. They turned to him and they said, Oh, come on, Rabbi Akiva, not again. Well, you find this, like, what's so funny? We don't get the joke. What is so funny? Again, they were shocked. You're seeing something. And they might have seen the temple when it stood. They remember the glory. I'm not exactly sure their ages, where they were, how they, but it's very possible that they were there, they remember what it was, the old, the previous glory, and see the temple like this. And this is a fresh wound. We're supposed to still feel it today, and we still feel it today. Imagine what was felt, those people, that was literally like tearing their hearts out, literally ripping their hearts out of their, out of their body. That's how much this, that's how painful this was. So they said, What are you laughing? So he turns to them and says, Why are you crying? Why are you crying? They said, The place that it says. The place. We're talking about the Holy of Holies. 
in which it says regarding it that a stranger, which means a non-Kohen, that will step close to this place. Or since we're talking about the Holy of Holies, it's not just a non-Kohen. It's even a Kohen. Because to the Holy of Holies, everybody's considered a stranger, even a Kohen. More, even the high priest. If it's not Yom Kippur, he too is considered a stranger. So Vazara Kara Yumas, that a stranger that comes close, Yuma should die. Vaakshav Shualim, Holchubai, foxes are now desecrating the place. Non-kosher animal, wild beasts are walking in the place where even the holiest of people could not step foot. And Veloy Nifkem, we shouldn't cry, as our eyes behold the saddest thing possible. The place that last year or 10 years ago, the Shekhinah dwelled in this place. If a person walked in, they were electrocuted by the great powerful presence of God. And now foxes are walking on that place. Amalahem, he said to them, I also thought about that. That's why I'm laughing. That's what makes me laugh. And he brings a Pasuk in Yeshaya. A Pasuk in Isaiah. Perik Ches, Pasuk Beis. It says, the Hashem tells Yeshaya Hanavi, take a pen and write down on a paper that even, if, even someone who is a very simple person should be able to read it very quickly. Make sure to write it very clearly. Don't make this some kind of a vague script. Don't make this some kind of an unreadable, readable thing that should be a secret. Make this legible to every person. Even an average reader. That what? The idli edim nemonim and testify to me those that are um, trustworthy witnesses. Who are the two witnesses? As Uriah HaKohen Vescharya Ben Yevar Chiyahu. These two people, who are the two witnesses? One is called Uriah HaKohen and the other one is Zechariah Ben Yevar Chiyahu. They will be the two witnesses that will testify. Simply over there it's talking about they testify about the, the, the pending destruction of, of, of Jerusalem. But the, the, um, the, the Rabbi Kiva stops. And Rabbi Kiva says, I don't get this. You're putting together two witnesses that didn't live in the same time period. Usually witnesses that testify are two witnesses that have to come to court at the same time. Here you're dealing with two prophets. Each one of them lived in a different time period. V'chima'in yin Uriah, Uriah was a Kohen. He lived in the days of Yehoyakum. He was actually killed by Yehoyakum because he, 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 said, he said scary prophecies. He was, he was foretelling to the Jewish people the calamities that were coming and they didn't like it. So Yehoyakum, the, kill, the king, killed him. In any case, By the way, I, I, I always, I'm, I'm trying to emphasize this. This is very, very important to understand this. Prophets, people who said prophecy weren't always popular. And I mentioned in my previous classes that a lot of people say, you know, I, I mentioned over and over again that the Lubavitcher Rebbe said prophecy, that the Geula is about to come. I meet sometimes people who like, who, who, who twinkle with their eyes or twist their nose and today with the nose, like you say in Yiddish. Because in there, they, they, they can't fathom, they can't wrap their minds around the idea that there should be a prophet in our days. Unlike what it says explicitly in Rambam, explicitly in Rambam, 
that before Mashiach will come, prophecy will definitely, Rambam says it not as a possibility, definitely come back. Who should it be? Who should it be? Rabbi, you know, I don't know, Moskowitz, who has a shul, young Israel shul over here, or Rabbi, uh, uh, someone who has a nice chassidish shtibel over there, or, or Rabbi in Flatbush, or who should it be, if not the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who saved the Jewish people, who set up the biggest network of Jews. I'm just, this is important to realize that. So people say, oh, but why not all the Jewish people doesn't hold of him, and not all the Jewish people. Well, there were prophets that were killed back then. Yermio Wanavi, they grabbed him when he said prophecy and they wanted to stone him in the, in the temple yard. They had to stop it. They had to, there's a whole story over here actually related to this prophecy. So if you think always that the prophets were the ones who were always so accepted by everybody, you should know that that wasn't the case. In any case, so this is very important to bear in mind. When I'm telling you all these signs, my main confidence it's not my own, my own uh, 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 insight. My main confidence is that the Rebbe said 30 years ago, 28 years ago, that we're now entering into the beginning and the threshold of redemption. So that's abs- And he said it as an absolute, not as a question, as an absolute thing, and he says it's a prophecy. So therefore we have to look at everything that's happening and see it as a prophecy. Are you going to say why it's taking 28 years? I have the same question. But the other thing is you have to realize we're dealing with an exile that took 2,000 years. So the emergence out of exile is a process. It doesn't happen in one day. Soon we'll put the dots together and we'll see that from 1990 it accelerated at incredible speed. Things are happening enormous. I'm trying, I tried to explain some of it in those two classes called Opening Our Eyes. Again, I recommend highly that, that uh, if you're able to get a chance. They're, they're, they're quite a listen. There's... One of them is almost four hours, the other one is three hours. It's a, it's a total of seven hours of information. But I think you'll enjoy it. It's, it's an exciting class to listen to, and it's good news. And anyways, so Uriah was a, one, one of the prophets. He was a Kohen. And he lived in the time of the first temple. Zechariah was a prophet in the early days of the second temple. He was saying the second year of Duryash. Duryavesh. Duryavesh is the one who gave permission to build the second temple. Or Koresh did, sorry. Koresh gave permission. But Duryavesh is one of the Persian kings. And Zechariah says prophecy at that time. I think Duryavesh is the king before Koresh. In any case, or maybe two before him. In any case. Uriah is talking about the first temple and lived in the time period of the first temple. And Zechariah is saying his prophecy in the early days of the second temple. Or it's at least prophesizing regarding that time. So therefore, how can you, how can you have them as both? So Rabbi Akiva is asking, I'm reading that verse, it doesn't make any sense. Hashem says to Isaiah, now by the way, Yeshaya lived before both of them. Yet, in his prophecy, he's actually naming prophets that are going to come later. And in his prophecy, he's speaking about them, and he's, but, he's, but he's, he's lumping them together in one, in one lump. He's saying that they, these two are witnesses. The reason why they're put together, even though they're tied to different periods, 
is because these are two prophecies where one is dependent on the other. And that's why I'm laughing. Because Uriah brought us bad news. Zechariah brought good news. But the good news of Zechariah is dependent on the bad news of Uriah. So therefore, Rabbi Akiva says, as long as I didn't see it with my own eyes, the full realization of the horror of the prophecy of Uriah, until I have not seen with my own eyes how devastating and how true and how fully extreme that prophecy was, the prophecy of Uriah, how it was realized in its utter devastation, devastation, what Uriah prophesied, how terrible it's going to be, the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, I kind of wasn't sure about the good news and the comforting words that I heard from Zechariah, in which he says beautiful things. But now that I get to see the real dark side, and I see it to its full realization, I am confident, and I am sure that the good will come, and the good will really fully manifest also to its fullest realization, and that's why I'm laughing. Right? Let's read it inside. It says, It's a in Micha. Tosus has a whole question. We never find Uriah saying that. Micha said it. How come we say it's Uriah? I'm not going to get into that. You go look in Tosus. For your, because of you, Tzion, Zion, Sadatichoresh is going to be plowed like a, like a field. So he says, he's talking about Tzion, the Beis Amigdash. And Micha, I mean, Uriah, again, the, the Gemara is, 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 is um, attributing this prophecy to Uriah. And he says that Sion, the Beis Amigdash, and the Temple Mount, Sadet Techoresh, is going to be plowed like a field. Which means there isn't going to be anything left. Nothing. There's going to be any foundations left. You're not even going to find a stone. It's going to be such a desolate mountain. It's going to be barren. It's going to be like a field. And the field is going to be plowed. Total destruction. Well, we see it now. You see the foxes are walking around there in a barren wilderness. Now let's take a look what that's the bad news. But let's take a look what the other sage, what, I'm sorry, what the other prophet said. Zechariah, what does Zechariah say? The day will come that elderly men and elderly women will sit in the streets of Jerusalem. That means Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt again and the streets of Yerushalayim are going to be swarming with people. If anybody ever went to the Shuk of Ben Yehuda, Take a look what's happening now. Go on the shuk on a Friday afternoon. Old men and old women screaming, Avatiach, Avatiach, selling watermelons and anything. It's unbelievable what's going on. It like makes anywhere in Los Angeles or in New York or in Brooklyn puts to shame the busyness, the excitement, the fervor. And then he says over there, the, the older men and older women are sitting in the streets of Jerusalem 
will sit and, and little children and boys and girls will be running around, Mesachaka is playing. In other words, he sees the ultimate return of the glory of Yerushalayim. So he says like this, as long as the prophecy of Uriah was not fulfilled, I was afraid that the Nevuah, the prophecy of Zechariah, I was afraid will not be fulfilled. If I didn't see this prophecy fulfilled, I wasn't sure about the other prophecies. Now that I see that the prophecy of Uriah was fully realized and fully fulfilled, it is known, I also know that the prophecy of Zechariah is going to be fulfilled. Because I've seen this fulfilled, I've seen the dark prophecy fulfilled, I know that that bright prophecy will also be fulfilled. And how do I know it? How do I know one is dependent on the other? Because the Pasuk says, Hashem said already to Isaiah, to Yeshaya, the, testify these two, these two um, prophets as, as witnesses. And if they're witnesses, means they're together. Together their prophecies are locked and intertwined one with the other. When they heard this, Rabbi, Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Loza ben Azariah turned to Rabbi Akiva, and they say, Beloshen hazeh omruloi. In exactly these words they said to him, Akiva... Nechamtanu. Akiva, you comforted us. Akiva, nechamtanu. Akiva, you comforted us. Twice. Nachamu, nachamu. Be comforted, be comforted. Here you have the double comfort. Same thing like we have the prophet says. They felt the comfort at that moment. They got the comfort of nachamu, nachamu, the double nachama. They heard it from Rabbi Akiva. This is the story. Now let's take a look and examine this, tear it apart a little bit, open it up, and see what's the inside story over here. What's really going on. So like everything, we have to learn deeper. And in this case, especially when we deal with Moshiach, our reliable source is the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. The reason why he's the, such a reliable source is because when he was a little boy, the Rebbe writes to the President of Israel. The Lubavitcher Rebbe writes to the President of Israel. I forgot the President's name at that time. He should, he should please excuse him. The Rebbe writes him a letter. And then the end he makes a P.S. in the letter. P.S. What's the P.S.? He says, I hope you will not be upset that I didn't write to you when I addressed my letter the title of President. He wrote in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the president is called Nasi. So the Rebbe says, please forgive me that I am not addressing you as president. With your title that you deserve, because you're president. And the Rebbe says, I'm going to tell you why. I just couldn't bring myself to write those words. Because president, the Rebbe says, is the, the, the Torah uses the word Nasi as a king. And it refers to in many places in, in Tanakh to the ultimate king, King Moshiach. He's called Nasi. So the Rebbe says like this, in my heart and in my soul, I wait every day for Moshiach. I'm paraphrasing. 
This is the yearning and the pining of my soul. For that day, for the revelation of Moshiach, the true Nasi. And the Rebbe says, to show you how much this has been, this is in my, in my blood, the Rebbe says these words, Okay, listen to these words. From the day that I went to Cheder. Cheder. Cheder is when little boys go to school. It's called Cheder. The day my father took me to kindergarten. Cheder. You know, you start learning olive bits. From the day I went to Cheder. That means probably four years old. Maybe three years old. Then the Rebbe says, Even before that age. So which age is that? Probably about two years old. Maybe one and a half years old. I don't know what he means. It started to formulate and to envision in my mind the imagery of the redemption of the Jewish people. When I'm a little boy, from when I'm in the crib still, I'm imagining already the, the vision of the future redemption of the Jewish people. And as part of that future, future radiant, of that radiant future, stands out the figure who is Mashiach Tzedkenu, who is the king, who is Nasi, he is a king. She'en el who has no authority, no one has any authority above him, only God. That means he's, he's, he's the highest, and above him is only Hashem's authority, no one else. And therefore, and a ge'ula, and what kind of redemption? Hear this, now he's saying when he was two years old, or younger than that maybe. He's already, that, this is in his mind, this is what he's thinking about. This is his aspiration, this is his yearning. And therefore the Rebbe says, and it's going to be such an incredible, beautiful, comforting um, 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 a redemption that it's going to justify all the suffering. Which at that time, the Rebbe says, we're going to say, the Jewish people will say, I thank you God that you have rebuked us. Then we're going to appreciate all the pain and the suffering of the long exile. So the Rebbe says, for someone who's been yearning and longing to see this, I can't use that term for anybody else other than Mashiach. I can say it, the Rebbe says, superficially, and I wouldn't mean it, but you're a true person, the Rebbe says, and therefore I wouldn't want to say words that I don't mean and you wouldn't want me to communicate words. I mean, I respect you as being, as being the president of the state of Israel. But you're not that man. You're not that ultimate leader who is the Nazi of the Jewish people. I couldn't write that. So why am I bringing that letter? Because I'm saying when you have a person who's when he's one years old and two years old, is yearning for the redemption already. When he's laying in crib, he's fantasizing. His fantasy is the redemption. That's his imagination. That's what he's thinking about all day long. So when we get to this Gemara, and we want to have the inner story of the ultimate comfort of Rabbi Akiva, 
we can understand that the Rebbe learned this, this passage of the Gemara with extra, extra investment and with extra uh, um, um, attention. So the Rebbe asks a whole, like seven, eight questions. Some of the questions are asked by the other, by the other commentators as well. So let's go through the questions. The first thing is the strangest thing that Rabbi Akiva turns to them and he says, why are you crying? What kind of question? Rabbi Akiva, again, it's true. They asked him first why you're laughing. But what does it mean Rabbi Akiva says to them, why are you crying? Is it not self-understood why they're crying? Of course they're crying. I mean, you see Rome that destroyed the temple and they're, they're, they're so powerful and they're so, that's, that, that, that's horrible. Of course it's a reason to cry. Especially... You see the Beis Amigdash being lay in ruins to make matters worse. It's not like Rabbi Kiva didn't understand that. In the second story, Rabbi Kiva too rent his garments. It says they came to Mount Scopus, they all tore their clothing. Rabbi Kiva also tore his clothing. So you see, Rabbi Kiva wasn't detached. Rabbi Kiva wasn't living in La La Land in, in, in some imaginary beautiful world. He saw, he felt the pain and the suffering of the, of the, of the exile. He, he tore his garments. So what is he asking them? Why are you crying? That's question number one. Question number two. Let's remember all the questions. When he when 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 they're answering Rabbi Akiva, when they're answering Rabbi Akiva, why they're crying in the second story, they say a place that it is written upon it, Hazara Karav Yumas, that if a stranger steps close, he should die. A place that it's written on it that if a stranger steps close, he should die. And uh, now foxes are going there. That's interesting. The verse that they are saying, the stranger that goes comes close to it should die, is not talking about the holy of holies. It's talking about the general prohibition of a non-kohen to work in the base amigdash. There's two things. Number one, anybody that's not a kohen is not allowed to work in the temple. Now let it officiate in the temple. So, and then there's something else. There is the Holy of Holies, where no one is allowed to go, even the high priest, even the Kohen God. That's learned out from a different Pasuk, in Pashas Achare. Pashas Achare, it says, Val bachol You shouldn't come at all times to the Holy. Val bachol You shouldn't come at all times to the Holy. So, if they wanted to tell Rabbi Akiva how terrible it is, there's a violation of a mitzvah. You're now allowed to go there. And a fox is going there. Right? They want to say, look, a dog is going there. Say, a fox is going there. So then why are they using the pasuk that's not talking about the Holy of Holies? They should use the verse that's speaking about the Holy of Holies, which it says that, the koyin, that even a Kohen, even a Kohen Gadol may not go there, Bechol Ace, at all times besides Yom Kippur. That's another question. And the next thing, Rabbi Akiva's answer. Rabbi Akiva says, as long as I didn't see this prophecy fulfilled, I didn't know if the other prophecy will be fulfilled. What do you mean? 
A prophecy. It's a prophecy. We have an obligation to listen to a prophet. It's a mitzvah. And it's a sin if we don't believe a prophet. If a prophet is a true prophet. This is a prophecy. It's, it's recorded in the Navi. It's actually written in the, in the 24 books in the Tanakh. How can we keep it out? I didn't know. But now when I see this, now I know. What kind, of, what kind of statement is that? I don't want to say it. Sounds like heresy. It's like, I'm not, I'm not so sure about it. I'm not so sure if Mashiach is coming. Now I see that, now I know about that. But hold, it's a prophecy. It has to be fulfilled. Especially we know that when it comes to, there's a halacha, and Rambam states it, regards to prophecy, prophets, that when a prophet gives us bad news, it's not necessarily going to happen. Bad news it's possible to be revoked. We will do tshuva, we will cry, like when Hashem told Yonah to go to Nineveh and tell them that he's going to destroy the city. They did tshuva, and then the city was not destroyed. So a prophecy regarding bad news doesn't have to happen. But a prophecy regarding good news can never be changed. So this is a good news prophecy. Zechariah's prophecy about the old man and the old woman sitting in the streets of Jerusalem is a good prophecy. But the rebuilding, so for sure it's going to happen. What's his question? The other thing is, which particular pasuk does Rabbi Akiva bring when he wants to talk about a dark prophecy? A prophecy about, about the destruction? He brings Dafka the pasuk about Sion Sadei Techaresh. That Sion is going to be plowed like a field. Now there are other prophecies in Tanakh regarding the desolation of the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. Why does Rabbi Akiva Dafka choose that Pasuk? Tzioin Sadeh Techoresh as his as his epitome of darkness. The other question is who is the main hero of this story. You have four sages. Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Lozavetazah, Rabbi Akiva. The other sages, they're tremendous big sages, but they're acting in an understandable manner. There's no great novelty in what they did. They cried. They were sad. Well, we would also be sad. I mean, that's not, that's not why we're reading, that's not why the Gemara has this Gemara. The great idea over here is Rabbi Akiva, that he was able to look 10 steps ahead. He can see the light at the end of the tunnel. He's the optimist in the darkest situation. He sees the future. So then why is it important to know who these other sages are? It should say, Rabbi Akiva and his friends were walking. Like we find many times, when the sages want to focus the spotlight on one sage, on what he said versus the others, it doesn't say their names. There's many examples of that. and they call them the Zekenim, the sages. How come it tells us their names? It must be that by seeing their names, we actually get more insight into the story. Now, the other thing is, how come after the first story, when Rebekah also gave them a positive twist, a positive spin on the story. Uh, if, to the, if the bad guys are having such a party, imagine the good guys. 
we don't see that they accepted it. They didn't say to him, you comforted us. It's only the second time he said it when they saw the fox. Ooh, that really got to them. Then they said, Akiva, you're right, you comforted us. How come they didn't concede the first time, only the second time? And last, what does it mean when the Gemara says, Belashen hazeh, in this Lashen they said to him, Akiva nichamtonu, Akiva nichamtoni. Why are they saying it twice? You comfort us, you comfort us. Now the Marsha says, obviously you're probably thinking that, and the Marsha says it. The reason they said after Akiva Nechamtani twice is because after the second episode, they already accepted the comfort from the first episode as well. Their two times you comforted, you comforted us was not just regarding the second episode, it was also regarding the first episode. That's what the Marsha wants to say. Problem is that these were two separate stories. They happened, they could have happened 10 years apart. Two, two different things. So, why is it that after the second one, now they're suddenly going back? If they felt what he was saying was right already the first time, they should have said Akiva Nechamtani the first time. Why? Uh, you know, why the Gemara brings both stories because they both have the same content? But why are they waiting? To after the second story, and then they're saying two times, Akiva Nechamtani after the first one as well. You comforted us, you comforted us. Okay, we also need to understand what really is the argument between the other sages and Rabbi Akiva. Obviously, they, their, their outlook is also a Torah valid outlook. It's right, it's correct. How do you know? Because they thought these are the sages. Especially, especially since it doesn't say that they actually admitted to him. It doesn't say they admitted to him in the end and they said, hey, Rabbi Akiva, you're right, we should all laugh. It just says they comforted. You comforted us. You comforted us. It means that, I, that, that in concept they still hold, perhaps, that their reaction is the proper reaction. It's just that you comforted us. We don't see explicitly that they agreed to Rabbi Akiva. Which means that it could be that even after everything, their outlook is also valid, a Torah outlook. Not just as a, what we call in Gemara, Havamina, an initial thought, but maybe it's a maskana as well, which means it's, it has an actual ramification in Allah as well. So we need to understand what really is the argument. So the simplest explanation can possibly be, the moment we hear Rabbi Akiva, we, re, we try to like run through our mind what else Rabbi Akiva stands for. So one of the famous things we know about Rabbi Akiva is Rabbi Akiva is the one who authored the phrase, very famous phrase, Kol da'ovid rachma, it's a Gemara Masech des Brachis, Tafsamach. So the Gemara says that Rabbi Akiva said, Kol da'ovid rachmana letav ovid. Whatever God does is for the good. Rabbi Akiva has an attitude in life that no matter what your situation is, no matter what you're dealt with, you might be going through something difficult and harsh, sad, and chas even crushingly sad, but you should know what? That whatever God does is for the good. 
The Gemara actually tells a story, the famous story of Rabbi Akiva that illustrates it. Not only Rabbi Akiva said this, but Rabbi Akiva behaved that way. So the Talmud says that one time Rabbi Akiva was out, and he was traveling, and he came to a town. And usually when Rabbi Akiva came somewhere, somewhere, everybody would run out, and they would invite him in, and have him stay at their homes. Who would want Rabbi Akiva? A guest. I mean, it would be the biggest honor. But this was a very nasty village and a nasty town, and no one wanted to look at him. I don't know if the doors were locked already and the watchman didn't want to let him in, or he tried knocking on doors and they didn't want to let him in. I don't know if it was a Jewish town. I'm not exactly sure what the story was. I didn't look up the story. I'll tell you the truth. I, I, you know, it's an old story in my head. Sometimes you have these old stories from Chazal, and if you don't take out a Gemara before and look up the exact story, which I didn't do, so I don't recall exactly. But I know the Gemara says they didn't, he didn't get to lodge in any of the places. He felt really, and, and, but what did he say? Another person would be really frustrated, right? He's left to sleep in the field. To lodge out. He didn't, have a, he didn't have a tent. He didn't have a sleeping bag, maybe. He's left out there in the middle of a, of a field in the wilderness. Well, well, he has no choice. So that's where he makes, he makes himself comfortable and he goes to sleep for the night. Now he had with him a donkey and he had with him a, a, a chicken, a rooster, to wake him up in the morning. He had an alarm clock. Maybe Kiva liked to wake up early in the morning to study Torah. So he had an alarm clock, a little rooster, would do a cock-a-doodle-doo. And he had a donkey, and he had a, he had a lamp, he had a lantern. And uh, suddenly a powerful wind blew, and he put out his light. Or maybe, the other, maybe, maybe that happened last. I think what happened first was that, um, that a lion came. And no, no, the first thing that happened was his donkey died. His donkey just fell down dead. The donkey was so upset that he's not doesn't have any, but no one is uh, inviting them in. That the donkey had a heart attack and the donkey died. The next thing happened that a lion came up, creeped up, it was a little frightening, and grabbed this chicken for a snack. It wasn't lunch. A lion needs more than a chicken for lunch. But this was a nice chicken wing, you know, barbecue chicken wing for the lion, just for saying, yeah, two wings. Anyways, poor chicken got eaten up by the lion. I'm, I'm sorry, not chicken, rooster. So now he doesn't have his rooster and he doesn't have his donkey, but he has his lantern. He can stay up and learn. You know, suddenly his powerful wind comes and puts out his lantern and he can't make another fire. He's left in the dark. And each of these things, Rabbi Kiva keeps, every time this happened, Rabbi Kiva just said, instead of going, shucks, like, and maybe other words that would, other people would say, Rabbi Akiva said, everything God does is for the good. And anyways, turns out he woke up in the morning, Rabbi Akiva, and he found out that the, the town where he was, because he wasn't, he was, he was hanging out not far, he was sleeping outside of the town. And he found out in the morning that the town in the middle of the night was ransacked by gangsters, by, by highwaymen or robbers. And they, they, they killed everybody or they took everybody into, into, into slavery, into captivity. And Rabbi Akiva realized how really it was everything God did. Had he slept in their homes, they would have taken him captive as well. Or he would have been killed as well. Had his donkey been around, the donkey would have made noise and they would have spotted him. Had the, the rooster been around, the rooster, the rooster would have given him away. Had his lantern been turned on, they would have seen the light burning. Then they would have caught him. But because it was dark and because there was no donkey and there was no rooster in there, and he wasn't and he, wasn't, and he didn't have anywhere to stay, basically this spared his life. So the Gemara says, this is Rabbi Akiva's attitude to life. Call the Abed Rahman al
So we can say that this is Rabbi Akiva's opinion. Because Rabbi Akiva lives that way, so everything he sees, he always says it's for the good. So when he sees these terrible things in Rome and the other story, yeah, Rabbi Akiva is the, is the ultimate uh, optimist, always giving God the benefit of the doubt. It's for the good. You have to say, the other sages maybe did not believe in that or did not uh, live in that mode that every single thing that happens is good. And maybe they thought bad stuff happened. Obviously, this would be a very, very shallow explanation. Why? Because it's hard to believe that the other sages argue with Rabbi Akiva as, as, a, as, a, as an attitude to life. No, that bad things do happen. And therefore, when things happen that don't go wrong, you should be mad and angry and frustrated and, and, uh, and, and see it as a curse. Especially since we know it's a halacha. In Shulchan Aruch, it's paskin this way. In Tor Shulchan Aruch, in the end, in Arachayim, Simen Reish Lamed, it says explicitly, adam lomar, A person should always say, Kol da'avid rachman al-tav avid. And we don't find a machlokas. We don't find anywhere that anybody argues on Rabbi Akiva on that. It teaches it to us regarding Rabbi Akiva, but it doesn't say anywhere that others have a different opinion. So it's hard to accept that the other sages would have an attitude that things that happen in the world are bad. And that's why they looked at these events as bad. So we have to say that this can't be the explanation. Another reason why we can't say this is the explanation, why would we need, why would the Gemara have to tell us this theme and this idea three times? Once in Masechtas Brachas, Rabbi Akiva says, tells you the rule, whatever God does is for the good. Then you have a story when they saw Rome partying and Rabbi Akiva looks at it and says, it's so bad, but really whatever God does is for the good, there must be a good hidden behind it. And then why do you need a third story? Again, to teach you this halacha, everything is, Gemara always talks about what do you need it. Every, every story in Talmud is ta- taught to you to teach you something new that you didn't know. If you know already in Masechtas Brachas that called the Avid Rahman that everything that God does is good, then you know it already. So you don't need the story and another story. And why does the second story add more than the first story? And why do both stories add to the theme of... If this is just a general idea of always thinking positive and seeing good in things, then we know this already. There's nothing really new over here. And, th- and thirdly, the reason why we can't say that's the argument the Rebbe says, because if that was the case, how come Rabbi Akiva, when he's answering them, doesn't say the main argument. He should have answered this. When they say, why are you laughing? Laughing, Rabbi Akiva says, hey guys, did you forget everything that God does is for the good? Rabbi Akiva doesn't say that. Since he doesn't say, and, and, and especially this was, this was the phrase that was always on his lips. He always said it, and over here he didn't say it. Is a sign that the message over here goes far beyond the everything that God does is for the good. There's something deeper. It's not just that. So what is it? So in order to understand this, let's re-examine the story. You see, when Yaakiva went with them, of course, remember we asked the question, why was he surprised that they're crying? He's asking, why are you crying? Rabbi Akiva knew why they're crying on, on, on a simple level. He, he saw something terrible. Rabbi Akiva is asking them a sincere question. He's not just joking with them. He's not, it's, it's not a rhetorical question. Oh, why are you crying? You tell, and, and I'm going to... No, 
He actually wanted to know why they're crying. Meaning, what he really wanted to know was, he knew they were living in a time that the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed. They experienced the destruction on the Beis Hamikdash on their own flesh. Later, Rabbi Akiva is really going to experience on his flesh. They're going to comb his flesh with iron combs. They know how brutal and savage and utterly um, 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 monstrous the Romans are. And they know the horror of the, of the, of the Gullahs. So the question was, when they, and especially there is a halacha, you're not allowed to go out of Eretz Yisrael. If you're in Eretz Yisrael, if you don't have a special reason to leave, you're not allowed to leave. By the way, the reason why people always asked the Lubavitcher Rebbe, why don't you come to Israel? At least for a visit. You'll give such a, 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 a chizuk to all the Jews in Eretz Yisrael. The explicit reason the Rebbe gave many times was, or the Rebbe said, because I don't know if I go, if I'm allowed to leave. And I belong here because I have to save, I have to be with the Jews in the diaspora. I have to be with the Yidn while they're in Golis. And once I go, I don't know if I'm allowed to leave. Halachically. It's not so simple going to Eretz Yisrael and going out. So these sages, why are they leaving Eretz Yisrael? Especially amongst them was a Kohen. Rebbe Lazar ben Azariah is a Kohen. He's the 10th generation to Ezra. That's what the Gemara says. He was 10 generations, son after son after son of Ezra HaKohen. Now, Eretz Yisrael is considered pure. Outside of the land of Israel is considered ritually impure. The sages decreed that when a, a Kohen walks from Eretz Yisrael outside of Eretz Yisrael, he actually becomes defiled. In the time when the temple stood, he couldn't go back into the temple until he got red ahead. Even if he didn't come into kind, didn't go to a cemetery, didn't touch any dead corpses, the fact that you went out of Eretz Yisrael meant that you're considered ritually impure, you have to go get sprinkled with the ashes of the red heifer with the parado. So if that's the case, you're, a Kohen is definitely not allowed to leave Eretz Yisrael. Why is Rebbe Lozab and Azariah leaving Eretz Yisrael? So you have to say, they were going because, as we said earlier, it was to save the lives of the Jewish people. They were going there to pull some strings with the big, 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 you know, whatever, the big machers in Rome, to try to get them for the, for the good of the Jewish people. Then they were allowed to go. They needed to go for a higher purpose. That means that they very much are aware of Rome's power and Rome's strength. So Rabbi Kiva is asking them, what exactly made you cry now? As if you're getting... Because they heard the noise of the Romans partying. I mean, you know Rome is strong and powerful. What's new now that made you cry now? What information? Why did this provoke you? Why did this move you so deeply that you can't control yourself and you're sobbing? What information did you get now that you didn't have before? That's Rabbi Akiva's question. And the same is in the second story. Over there as well, Rabbi Akiva knows that the Beis Amigdash is destroyed and why they simply were crying. But as we said earlier, Rebbe Kiva also tore his garments. He knows. They weren't... See, Rebbe Kiva saw something. What did he see? He saw that when they came to Mount Scopus, and they saw the Beis Amigdash in ruins, they saw the Beis Amigdash destroyed, they can see it, they can see the temple isn't there. They remember when they were children, and they would see the beautiful Beis Amigdash, and now they're seeing uh, the, the place in ruins. 
but yet they're not crying. They fulfilled the mitzvah of renting their garments, but they didn't cry. When Rabbi Akiv, but when they saw the fox, they started crying. So Rabbi Akiv is wondering, what, what, I can understand the fox non-kosher animal, but what was so, what is so bad with, I mean, the general devastation happened before already, and you know about it, you're aware of it. Why is it that this is adding kind of salt to the wound that's making you cry? That's, that's his question. What are they answering? They're answering Rabbi Akiva one idea. And they're saying like this. They weren't bothered by the fact that the, I mean, that the Romans were, 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 were living a good life. That the Romans were powerful and they were a vast and mighty empire. That didn't bother them that much. Why? Because quite on the contrary, it's good that Rome is so powerful. It's good that Rome is this mighty empire because had Rome not been a mighty empire, had Rome been an average country, the shame and the embarrassment to the Jewish people that we were defeated by anyone else but the superpower of the world would have been unbearable. Understand that? If any Shmendrik can come and burn down our base on Mingdash, if a middleweight champion and not a heavyweight champion, if a regular guy comes and busts our temple and destroys our temple, that would be very, very, very devastating. The fact that we fell to a superpower is actually something that at least, you know, when someone, is de- someone, or someone goes boxing and he's defeated, as we said before, by a, by a, by a middleweight or by a lightweight guy, but if, if he got beaten by uh, the, the, the champion uh, uh, who never lost a fight, that guy, you know, it's not, it's, it's tolerable. I mean, you, you don't walk away with such shame. Because, okay, you know what? I, so actually, 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 um, Rabbi Akiva knows. Sorry. Actually, the fact that Rome is strong and powerful and mighty, it's bad that they destroyed the base of Migdash, but the Rome's power and Rome's strength is not what's perturbing them. That's not what's bothering them. Because, that, as we said before, that's a quality, that's a good thing. It actually says so in the Pasuk. Vahalavonoin, which refers to the base on Migdosh, the Levonon, um, Lebanon, which in this case refers to the base on Migdosh, Ba'adir Yipa, will fall with a mighty power. Their problem was not that their problem was not that Rome is so powerful. Their problem is the base on Migdosh was destroyed already 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Again, I don't know exactly how much after the destruction of the temple this was. It's already history. The temple is destroyed. Our base on Migdash is burnt down. Their words, our base on Migdash is saruf. It's burnt already. It's over. It's already burnt. If that's the case, why is Rome now powerful? Why is Rome now strong? If Rome was strong then, quite on the contrary, that's makes it less of a desecration of God's name. Okay, yeah, 
a mighty, it's, it's still a desecration. Because even if the strongest nation in the world can knock down God's building, it's a chilol Hashem, it's a desecration of God's name. If the Jewish people are trampled on and subservient to anybody in the world when we are God's children and God's people, that is a chilol Hashem. But it's not such a chilol Hashem. As we said earlier, because it's a mighty people. But that's only when, if at the time of the destruction, but it's 20, 30 years later, Gewald, the Jewish people, the city of God, Mishpeles, is downtrodden. The Jewish people are downtrodden. And take a look at these guys. They're partying, they're strong, they're mighty. This is such a desecration of God's name. How can it be? A half a century later and they're still powerful and they're still strong. In other words, they're saying it's a big... They're questioning like this. The Beis HaMish was destroyed, we understand, but why does it have to be with such a Chilil Hashem? Why does it have to be with such an extreme desecration of God's name? And what's the extreme desecration? The extreme desecration is that they're going unpunished already 30, 40, 50 years. And the Jewish people are down and they're up at such a long... and so, When it's unnecessary... They need to be strong for the time. Good, let them destroy and then fall. Let another empire take them over. They need to be punished. It's like people are bothered that the Germans who did what the Germans did, they got it, but they never got it. Everybody knows the Germans never paid for their crimes. With the fall of Berlin and with all, the, all that, that, that happened when the Russians came into Berlin and all the suffering, that's not the crimes for what they did. Germany is still going to have to answer to God. Everybody knows that for the six million Jews. So that's the question over here. How can it be later? That's the, that, that was their, their, their... In other words, their problem was why, why does it have to be accompanied by extreme chilul Hashem, desecration of God's name? And that's also their problem when they saw the, 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 the fox. What's bothering them is not just... They, oh, they knew earlier the base Hamidosh was destroyed and that it's desolate. What's, when they saw a fox walking there. They said, Geval, the Chilul Hashem, the desecration of God's name. A place, they dafka didn't bring the Pasuk that says, a Kohen, that even the Kohen Gadol can't go into the Holy of Holies. Their emphasis was, they wanted to use a verse that uses the word Zar. Zar means a stranger. A stranger that comes close is put to death. Even though that verse is not talking about the Holy of Holies. But in, in the greater context, the verse is saying that a stranger can't come close. Who's considered a stranger? Anybody. A, a, a non-Jew, definitely a stranger. Even a Jew is considered a stranger to go to the Holy Temple. And even a Kohen is considered a stranger regarding to the Holy of Holies. And even a, even a high priest, the holiest man in the world, the godliest person in the world, is considered a stranger. May not walk into God's private chamber. No one is allowed to go there. This place is so holy. And now a fox, not only a human, a fox, an animal, is walking around in the place. In other words, why the Chilil Hashem? This is so horrible. And now, now let's understand something. To add to that, even if it says, they knew the, they knew the Pasuk. The Pasuk says that Shualim Hochubah, that this fox will go there. But... They didn't realize that it has to... Why does it have to be on the Holy of Holies? If it goes around next to the Western Wall, the fox. 
It goes on the Temple Mount, but it has to go into the place where the Holy Ark once stood, right over there the foxes are playing. That is horrible. We know how the Palestinians treat that place. The kids play soccer up there now. They don't have any respect for it. They don't, it's not like they, the only reason they want it is because the Jews shouldn't have it. They have zero respect for that place. There's garbage there. They play, they, they play soccer on it. It's like, it's horrible. Our Jews are now out of pray. If Jews go up on the Temple Mount today, they're warned not to pray. That not. They can do whatever they do over there. But that's the Chilol Hashem. It's a desecration of God's name. So again, what bothered them was the extra, extra Chilol Hashem. So what's Rabbi Akiva's answer? What is Rabbi Akiva's answer? What is Rabbi Akiva telling them? So Rabbi Akiva is saying to them as follows. From this, in the first story, from this that you see that Rome's, um, that Rome is 40, 50 years later still partying, and our temple is destroyed, guess what Rabbi Akiva says? I see in that something very, very amazing. Because if people that are such sinners are yet in their good days, they're so powerful, they're so powerful, they're having such a good life, can you imagine, which is a desecration of God's name. Let's, let's, not, let, let's not kid ourselves. It's a desecration of God's name. But that's telling me that the Jewish people when the day will come that our star will rise and when the pendulum will move, will swing in the other direction to stay that way forever and ever and we the Jewish people will rise, we will rise to such light and such power and such honor and such incredible joy and jubilation that is going to be it's going to be exponentially greater than the Rome. It's going to be unbelievably a millionfold, a billionfold greater than ever. So great that the world is not going to, the, the, the whole world is going to see the sanctity of God's name. There is going to be such a Kiddush Hashem. Unbelievable. The Kiddush Hashem, the sanctification of God's name, as it says in the psalmist says, in before benching, we say it on Shabbos. Kapitel Kuf Chavav, we say, B'Shuv Hashem Shiva Siyon, when God is going to bring back the returnees of Zion, of the, the, what's going to be? It says over there, Oz Yomru Bagoyim, the Goyim are going to say, Higdil Hashem Lasei Simele, God did great with these people. Higdil Hashem, the, the Gentiles are going to say, Whoa, whoa! The, the unbelievable honor that Israel is going to have, that the Jewish people are going to have, that Hashem is going to be exalted. It's going to be so great. Now, had the Romans not been at number, at number 10, then maybe we, when Mashiach will come, maybe if they would be at number 6 in their honor, in their power, then maybe we would be at number 10. And that would be great. But if the Romans are at number 10, can you imagine we are going to be at 100 mark? That means that the greater Kiddush Hashem that's going to come out later is going to be so spectacular and so great. So Rabbi Akiva sees in the very desecration of God's name, he sees a future Kiddush Hashem. They see Chilul Hashem. 
And he sees this as an indication of a greater Kiddush Hashem. Okay. And let's go to the second story. When they saw, they said, how terrible, how devastating does it have to be? How bad does it have to be that a fox has to go in the Holy of Holies? So Rabbi Akiva says, hold it, hold it, Rabbi Akiva says. I always knew of the, of the, of the, of, of, of the prophecy of Zechariah, where Zechariah is describing Jerusalem, how beautiful it's going to be. But I never knew how amazingly intense that's going to be. I don't understand to what extreme. Of course Rabbi Akiva knew that it's going to happen. It's not a question whether Rabbi Akiva knew if Zechariah's prophecy. It's a prophecy. But is it going to be fulfilled mediocrely? It's going to be like, you know, five old men and five old women sitting around counting in Jerusalem. You can find one on that side and one on the other side, or one on this side, or a couple of kids running around. And then, or are we talking about hustling and bustling a city like you've never seen before? Packed with people, packed with life, packed with the sings and the shrills of children crying and singing in the streets, and old men and old women conversing and talking, and and the place is like unbelievable. How do we? Sri Bekiva says, when I saw that the prophets, when they spoke, their prophecies were not just prophecies, but they but their prophecies are so extreme. And they go all the way, 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 all the way to the deepest, strongest expression of the prophecy, like I see in the darkness. That the darkness is going to such an extreme. So I know that what? That the good news, the good prophecies are also going to go to an incredible extreme. It's going to be fulfilled in the highest way possible and beyond. Incredible. And Rebekah adds, in this story, and this is only in this story, not in the other story. Rebekah says, which witness does he talk? Which 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 test? Which prophecy does he use for the negative prophecy? He uses the prophecy of the city of of Zion, Jerusalem, Zion, being plowed like a field. What's the emphasis of plowing? Plowing. When, why do you plow a field? Does a farmer get angry at his field and say, I hate you? I can't stand it. I am so angry. I'm so frustrated. I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm going to let out my wrath on this field. I'm bringing in the oxen. I'm bringing in the tractors. I'm going to turn over this soil till there's going to be such a mess. That's not plowing. You plow because you're going to plant and you're going to sow. And the plowing itself is the beginning of the sowing. So Rabbi Akiva looked at this darkness and he said, I see this destruction. I see this carnage. The carnage that's here and the destruction that's here is actually a beginning and a seed and the very, very beginning of the ultimate rebuilding. It's not like here there's anger and later God is going to reconcile, it's going to be nice to the Jewish people. No, this very destruction, this very carnage, this very, very plowing and breaking of the soil and the utter elimination of the temple till there's nothing left over there to the point that foxes go over there. Yeah, 
This is a plowing. This is a plowing for the ultimate produce. This is a preparation for the ultimate light. And the Kiddush Hashem that's going to come is going to be spectacular. Okay, so now, based on this, I know the shear is going to go a little longer today than uh, we usually do, but bear with me. hope you forgive me. Be worth it. So the Rebbe says, oh here, the Rebbe says, you should know that, um, thank you. So what's really the argument? So what the Rebbe says, really, if you think about it, what's the question? You're over here confronted with a situation where you have a conflict. You have a Chilol Hashem and you have a Kiddush Hashem. Follow? You have a desecration of God's name that's happening now. And you're having a Kiddush Hashem that's happening later. In both stories... Right When Rome is very powerful, it's a de- desecration of God's name. These guys burnt the temple down. Judaism is in the pits, is downtrodden, broken. Our temple is, is burnt to the ashes. And these murderers, these killers, these I- idol worshippers, they're partying, they're strong, they're powerful. Terrible desecration of God's name. Second story as well. Foxes are walking in the holy of holies. That's the extreme Chilol Hashem, desecration of God. Everybody agrees right now, currently, is a Chilol Hashem. There will be a Kiddush Hashem in, in the future. And from the Chilol Hashem itself will come a greater Kiddush Hashem in the future. See, that's what we're seeing in both stories. If Rome would never be so high, it wouldn't push the Jewish people's heights to even a much greater height. Because then maybe we would have been, our heights would have been kind of mellow. But now if Rome, if you go, everybody knows if you look in history and you see Rome in its powerful days, they partied, they had life, like you can't imagine how good it was. I mean, everybody was killing each other too, but in, in, in terms of their wealth, in terms of their affluence and their enjoyment, Rome was like the ultimate... Um, they lived like you call a chazarish tug. They lived like like uh, total gluttons. And 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 and, and, and uh, but, but they had it good. They had it materialistically good, and they had it so good. So that and, and, and obviously to God, there was always the argument: if the sinners are having it so good, these are your people. They suffered for you. They died for you. They they persecuted for you. They did your mitzvahs. They serve you like a, they need to be rewarded. Unbelievable. So the Roman, the Chilol Hashem now is going to cause a Kiddush Hashem later. A greater And the same is also, we said with the story with the fox. Had, the, had it not been fulfilled to such darkness of how, how destroyed it's going to be, that it, wouldn't been, it would have not have been so plowed so well. And the, bed, the, bo- the better the plowing, the better it will grow out later. When it will grow, it will be so much greater. The, 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 the city of Jerusalem will be such light and such greatness. So the question is, in my life, when I am faced with a situation that's currently bad, but will lead to good later, am I supposed to consider the now or am I supposed to consider the later? 
Now this can be, and especially in the case where it involves a mitzvah. I'll give you the question. Do we look at current, is, does the current state of affairs overpower, um, does the current state of affairs overpower a more important future? Because it's not here. And let me give you a little example. We just fasted yesterday. Chas V'Shalom Mashiach doesn't come yet. I don't even want to think about this. A day after Rosh Hashanah, we're going to have another fast. It's called Saim Gedalia, the fast of Gedalia. Okay? Everybody know the day after Rosh Hashanah, we fast because this governor was killed. Whole story. Gedalia was killed. We fast. And then nine days later is Yom... Not nine days later. Seven days later is Yom Kippur. Now, what if someone knows... Halachically, here's a good question. If someone wakes up same Gedalia in the morning, the third day of Tishrei, and they come to the rabbi and they say, Rabbi, I can fast today. I'm okay. I, I, I feel the strength. I can fast. But I know one thing. If I fast today, my body is going to be weakened. And when Yom Kippur comes along, I will not be able to fast. All right? When Yom Kippur will come, I will be so weak because of the fast that I've done. I can fast once in three months. If I fast today, I won't fast on Yom Kippur. What's the question? The question is, Yom Kippur is much more important to fast. It's a biblical commandment to fast. The fast of Tzim Gedalia is kind of rabbinic. It's called Divrei Kabbalah. It's already written in the Navi, but it's, not, it's more rabbinic. Rabbinic commandments and, and laws are much weaker than biblical laws. But you can argue and say, today you can fast, you fast today. You won't be able to fast Yom Kippur. One, one side of the argument is, right now you have a rabbinic commandment to fast. You're feeling good? No problem? You're not ill? Fast. That's going to cause later that you won't be able to do a bigger mitzvah? We don't consider the future. We consider the here and the now, now. Or do we say, no. I have to look out to the future. Since I'm going to be able to do something greater in the future, I must consider that now and not do the smaller mitzvah now so that I can do a greater mitzvah in a week from now. It's a question. It's actually the Paiskim discuss this. Do we consider the now currently? Because this is now. I don't have to think about later. Or do I consider now already the future if the future holds something better and stronger and more important. So if we take that exact concept and apply it to a situation over here, there is a mitzvah called Kiddush Hashem. We have to sanctify God's name. It's a mitzvah. The opposite of this mitzvah is Chilul Hashem, desecration of God's name. So if you're asking me now about the situation Right now, there is a current Chilul Hashem. That's the story. There is a breach of a mitzvah. There is a desecration of God. But this is going to lead to a... This Chilul Hashem will lead to a greater Kiddush Hashem. It will lead to a great sanctification. But that's going to happen later. What is my supposed to be my attitude to what's happening now? Am I supposed to be devastated by the Chilu Hashem that's happening now, a diminishment in sanctification of God's name, or 
since I know that this is a, 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 a descent for the sake of an ascent, and because of this ascent, it's going to be so much greater later, am I to consider the later incredible Kiddush Hashem, even though compromising the current Kiddush Hashem and go working into the negative, into the minus. You see, it's the same idea. Do we look in a mitzvah, do we evaluate? And we'll say, Rabbi Akiva judges things based on what? On the future. And the other sages held that no, right now, it's true, what's going to happen later. Right now, currently you have to work with the now. And right now, this situation calls for crying. This situation calls for mourning. Later there's going to be a joy, I get it. That's one explanation. The Rebbe wants to add and say perhaps even more accurate is another halachic question. Let me give you another halachic scenario. Similar but not exactly the same. Where it's not a question if a later improvement is more important than do we count the lesser now or the later greater. Here it's a different question. We're having a brisbe as a Hashem next week. The bit, the 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 uh, the shear is dedicated in honor of a baby, baby boy. So the question actually becomes regarding a bris. Let me first say the essence of the question, and then I'm going to apply it to the bris because that's when it comes out. Should we, when you have a mitzvah, in which one of should we forego? Let me quit. Should we forego on a particular detail of a mitzvah? It's a mitzvah. You fulfill the mitzvah without that detail, but that detail is—it's a detail. It's part. It's a component of the mitzvah. Should one forego on a component of a mitzvah? If by foregoing on that component of the mitzvah. It's going to increase and enhance the general theme of the mitzvah and improve the general mitzvah much more, but it will require foregoing on a little detail of the mitzvah. See, one aspect is a detail. The other aspect is a general boost to the general mitzvah. And let me, let me show you exact, the perfect example for it. A bris... It says that every mitzvah you're supposed to do as early as you can do the mitzvah. It's called Zrizin Makdimim Lemitzvahs. You're supposed to rush to do a mitzvah. Who do we learn it from? From Avram Avinu. When God told him to shecht, when Hashem told Avram Avinu to take Yitzchak to the Akedah, what did Avram do? He set his alarm clock to 3 o'clock in the morning. He was up by the crack of dawn rushing. That's where a Jew does a mitzvah. He's supposed to do it early in the morning, not tarry and not um, uh, procrastinate, that shows that you're not interested. If there's a bris, so imagine if we announce that the Roth bar mitzvah, uh, not bar mitzvah, um, uh, bris, is going to be at 6.15, is going to be, wait, what are you talking about? Now you can daven already 5.30. 5.30 is going to be davening, 6.15 a.m. is going to be the bar mitzvah. Now all the bestamskis and all the raw, everybody has to show up here at 6.15 in the morning. And we can imagine that there's a very big fan club. I do believe that the family, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, there's a, very, there's, a very, there's a very big fan club, Baruch Hashem. The immediate family that I know coming here to shul are going to be here by hook and by crook on time. 
a little bit further guests and friends uh, will show up uh, way after the moment, after the bris. Because they're not waking up at 6 o'clock in the morning. So here's basically the question. If you do the, if you do the bris 6.15, you're going to have the mitzvah being done with the detail of rushing, of doing a mitzvah with alacrity. But you're going to be lacking in the general atmosphere. When you have a lot of people by a, by, a, by a mitzvah, it adds to the atmosphere of the mitzvah. It generally beautifies the mitzvah, lifts the entire mitzvah up to a much higher and more beautiful place. Mitzvahs are supposed to be done, especially once in a special mitzvahs that come from time to time, are supposed to be done with a lot, big public participation. So you have a choice. You can do the mitzvah with, with, with adding the component of also rushing, and getting it done early in the morning, but thereby lacking in the general hidder mitzvah of having a nice, beautiful, having a beautiful crowd. Or the opposite. Or maybe you should wait until you can make the mitzvah more beautiful. Even though, even though you're going to forgo, even though you're going to forgo on the detail of the mitzvah. So which one overweighs? Which one overweighs? I'll give another example. It's sukkis, an example. It's sukkis in the morning, and you have a you have four species. You have the four plants. You have the four plants. You want to sit down? Perfect. It's going to take a few more minutes. Yeah, I know you came to pick her up, but uh, yeah, you can sit there. So. The, you have four species, and um, but you, you, your species are not the best. They're low quality species, and you want to do the mitzvah early morning. But you know, at about one o'clock in the afternoon, someone is coming from out of town, and you heard they have really exemplary for minim. Their esrug, their lulav is really perfect. I'm not talking just it's a little nicer. I'm talking about that it's a higher grade and more kosher. It's kosher like this. You ask the rabbi, he looked at it, he says, you can get away with it, it's kosher, but it's not. So the question is, you can only make the blessing once. You can't make it twice. Should you do it early morning on a not such perfect because you're going to be doing it early? Or should you wait until you can do the mitzvah in a more beautiful way, a more better thing? Same question. Here we're not dealing with later and earlier. It's not an issue of this being later and this being earlier. The, the, the question over here is the general hidur of a mitzvah override the, the, the one detail of it. And this is exactly the story over here as well. You have Kiddush Hashem and Chilul Hashem. Right now in the story of Rabbi Kiva and, and in the current situation in the world, Kiddush Hashem is now lo- is losing. There is a Chilul Hashem. That means that the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem is taking a hit. There is a, a lacking. But, but, but only through this lacking, the diminishment of the Kiddush Hashem now is going to bring us to a much greater observance of Kiddush Now if we won't go through this Chilul Hashem, if we won't break off a piece of the mitzvah, 
That means we won't break off a piece of the sanctification of God's name temporarily now. We will never have this awesome Kiddush Hashem like the world has never seen forever and ever on the highest, highest, highest level. We will never have it. Should we forgo on, the, on, on a detail of the mitzvah, which is, car, which is the current Chilal Hashem, so that we can one day, again, I'm not emphasizing so much, it happens to be that it's later and before, but the idea is not later and before. The data is the general beauty of the mitzvah is, gonna, is, is, is causing you to do a diminishment in the mitzvah on a certain detail. Should you or not? And these are the opinions Rabbi Akiva held that the general gist of the mitzvah is more important. And Rebbe Leezer. Now I realize I can, t- to fully explain everything, is another 45 minutes, and I don't want to do that to the beautiful, beautiful Jews that are here. But I do want to just conclude and, and say that... Um, What is it that, why did Rabbi Akiva, why did the other sages in the end give in to Rabbi Akiva? Why did the other sages in the end concede and say, Nihamtani, you have twice, Nihamtani, Nihamtani, only after the second story? Because the main novelty in the second story of of um, of Rabbi Akiva, let's say I'm just I'm, you know let, let's just go through one one more. Remember we said earlier if if we say because really there are there are three ways to explain the argument between the two. One way is the general idea whether we say everything that God does is for the good, and that we said everybody agrees to everything that God does is for the good. The other one is should we consider the future now? Or should we only live in the present? I know today's days it's a very, 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 very cool thing that everybody, whoever is like really sophisticated says you got to live in the present. you got to live in the present. Here we're talking about the quality of actually living in the future, not only in the present. The main thing is not to be stuck in the past. That everybody agrees. Stuck in the past is no good. But living in the present, but also living in the future. Okay. That's the second idea. Should we consider the future or only, or only consider the, the current? Or the third discussion that we had over here was that what? Should we, should we compromise on a detail for the betterment of what? For the betterment, for the improvement of the whole. Of the general thing. Okay. But I want to just for one minute go back to the first idea of seeing the good. And I just want to bring out the, remember we said, why does it have? To, why do you need three stories? The general attitude of Rabbi Akiva, the story with the donkey, the 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 the. the see, by the story with the donkey and the and the chicken and the rooster and the uh, lantern, Rabbi Akiva said, "Called over the Rahman al-Latav of it." That story, if you think about it, it's very minimal. And what do I mean, very minimal? What Rabbi Akiva experienced then was a tragedy. And let me explain you what the tragedy was. The tragedy was he lost his donkey. The next day Rabbi Akiva has to go to Donkey Depot and buy a new donkey. That's the story. He's going to have to go get a new donkey. 
and he's going to have to stop in and buy a new lantern, and he's going to have to get himself a new alarm clock. These are things that he, and it's going to cost him. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna have to pull out his credit card and pay for these three things. Bottom line, Rabbi Kiva's going to have to do that. It's only that it avoided something much worse. Okay? So it was a bad thing. Inherently, it's not a good thing that he lost these things. It is for a greater good that came later. So now, let's for one second. In the story, however, with... Um, and, at the time that Rabbi Akiva said it's for the good, let's stop a second. When Rabbi Akiva lost his donkey, and lost his, his rooster, and lost his lamp, when he said it's good, he knew a good, he knew a good must come. Because when God does something, it must be good. But he had no idea what the good is. He was clueless. He had simple faith it's going to be good. He had no clue what it was. Let's go to the first story now with Rome. The benefit of the first story of Rome is number one. At the time when they were looking at the power of Rome, at, at the might and the heyday and the strength of Rome, we can already see the good that this is going to create. Because if bad guys have it good, good guys have to have it better. It's not something that we're going to find out later. It's something that we know already now. We can know what the good is going to be. We, we don't know exactly how the good, what, but we know that from this bad will come this good. That that's the benefit of the second story over. In other words, the letav of it, the good that Rabbi Akiva is seeing, is already a definable and a a a a a detect a detectable good, not just one that he has to believe in and accept in faith. But there is another benefit to the first story over the story of Mesechta's brachas with the donkey and the chicken. What's the second donkey? Inherently, losing the donkey does not contribute anything good to Rabbi Akiva. What do I mean by that? Had Rabbi Akiva never brought his donkey on this trip, had Rabbi Akiva never brought his alarm clock, his rooster on the trip, had Rabbi Akiva never brought his lantern, for whatever reason he left them at home, because he never planned on sleeping outside, he was planning to be inside. That means he would have never taken that loss. He would have also been in the same good situation. So it's not like he gained something. Now that he had them, he needed to lose them. Follow? Now that he had a donkey and a rooster and a lantern, they would have given him away. They would have gotten him in trouble. So God needed to take them away from him. But inherently, he didn't need to have these three things had he forgot them at home or not brought them to begin with, he would have also been good. He would have never had to pay and buy a new one. Follow? So there is still something bad there. It's just that for the greater good, if you asked Rabbi Akiva, you thought it would, be, would have been worthy to die so that you can keep your donkey and your roost? Of course not. But in our case, the actual celebrations of Rome is a bad, but it's a bad that without that bad, we're not going to have the greater good. Remember, Hashem is going to evaluate when Mashiach comes. He says, if I gave Rome so much wealth, I have to give the Jewish people so much more wealth. So actually their wealth is a stepping stone to even much greater wealth. So it's, it's actually their, that bad is now bad, but it's a stepping stone and therefore a leading up to a good and it is necessary for the good. So it's more, it's more than before. But it all doesn't come close to the final story in terms of letav of it, of how good it is. Why? Because only in the final story 
where Rabbi Akiva sees the, the, the fox walking on the, on, the, on the Temple Mount is where you see the ultimate good. Why? What's so good about the fox? In the fox's story, remember, what does Rabbi Akiva say? Rabbi Akiva says, when I saw this fulfilled, I know that it's going to be fulfilled, and he compares it to a, the two witnesses, and he compares it to a, a field being plowed. When a field is being plowed, it's not a bad thing that will lead to a good thing. Plowing a field doesn't begin to be bad. Plowing a field is the beginning of the great produce. That's the way you get to the big word. It's not like a farmer walks home and he walks home and he tells his wife, I can't sleep tonight. I'm in such pain. My farm is such a mess. My field is a disaster. And every time he chokes up with emotion, thinking of how messed up his soil is, it's like a mess. He took pictures and he looks at it and he weeps. And then he consoles himself that later good will come out of it. No, that's not what happens. The guy knows I am plowing so that I can plow, I can go. It's one, it's one continuation. That means it's not a bad, like in Rome, the Roman being strong and mighty and having, uh, having parties, their, 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 uh, what do they call it? Their pagan parties, their, their hedonistic lifestyle that they had is bad. It's just that that will serve as a barometer for God. He will see that and he will say, oh, for the Jews, I got to make it so much better. So it's good that they're up here so that we will be so much greater. So it's a bad for the sake of good. Here it's not even a bad. It's we got to plow it so that we can get something bigger. And that's why, and that's the Chiddush in this story. In this story, it's, it's more, it's Gamzulatova. This too is good. Rabbi Akiva is taking the idea of the goodness in the bad to the extreme where right now it is so good. It's good, shepherd, good. And that's why he says these two witnesses. The idea of him saying these two witnesses, what Rabbi Akiva is really doing, let's think about it. The fact that these are two rab, two philosophers, two, two, two um, um, prophets, by turning them into, he says, the, Hashem says, these are my, be my two witnesses. When two witnesses testify, they become one entity. That's the idea. They become one entity. So one guy is speaking, uh, one guy, I'm sorry. One, one, one um, prophet is speaking 3,000 years earlier. I'm sorry, 2,000 years earlier about devastation. The other one is speaking about what? Rebuilding. And hear the depth. You know what Rabbi Akiva is saying? Rabbi Akiva is saying that he, because these are two, wit- two witnesses, they become one. That means that the entire Jewish history, with all the pain and suffering and darkness and frustration and, 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 and all, the, all that, all, as we said earlier, all the carnage, all of that is all part of a growth. It's part of an ultimate goodness. It's not, basically what, what these two witnesses do is they take, one is standing on one end of history, and the other one is standing at the other end of history, and they become two witnesses that become one entity. And it becomes one, one light, one ultimate rebuilding, one ultimate plowing of a field for the ultimate produce of Mashiach. That's awesome. That's what Rabbi Akiva is saying. And that's why when the sages heard it, they said, now, Akiva, nichamtani, nichamtani, twice. What's the twice? They don't mean both stories, like the Marsha says. What they mean is two things. Number one, nichamtani, the first consolation is that we can, that we can see the future. 
That even though you're looking now bad, you can see the good that will come out of it. That's the first consolation. I know that now it's bad and the future will be good. The second consolation is that you're redefining the bad. You're redefining what's happening now. This is not a catastrophe. This is not a destruction. This is a rebuilding. This is a plowing. This is a growth. And if we can take that in our personal lives, to be able to burrow into every story that happens, every time we fall, every time something, something difficult and harsh, and when we realize that that thing is never bad, it is actually the beginning of something marvelous and good. We don't, and if we can trust God in that and live in that, that's Rabbi Akiva's message. That's its ultimate good. And that's the ultimate nechama b'keflayim. That's nachamu nachamu. That's what the Rebbe was talking about in his letter when the Rebbe says, he says, when Mashiach will come, we will turn around and we will thank Hashem for every moment of the exile. Imagine, we will thank God for every moment of the exile. It's not enough to have Mashiach. You need Mashiach who will be able to explain every sorrow, every tear, every droplet of blood will be then explained of how that led up to such a goodness that we will thank Hashem for it. Now it's impossible for us to understand. When Mashiach will come, we will understand it. And that's the ultimate Nacham. Today, when the family of the foxes have already been evicted from their, from their place, they've already been sent out, we know if Rabbi Akiva saw it then, the Abishter is winking his eyes to us and telling us, Yidin, now, not tomorrow, now. Telling you, Yidin, and I'm telling this to myself, everybody, let's get ready to greet Moshiach Tzitkenu for real. Because it's really, really happening. May it happen now.